0: Some people would say, I'm, I'm from the UK. Some people would say, I'm from Britain. Some people would say, I'm from England. People who weren't from England would say, I'm from, well, Welsh, they would say, I'm from Wales. Scottish, they would say, I'm from Scotland. If you were English, you would either say English, British, or I'm from the UK. And I think I was navigating, hearing what other people were saying and thinking, oh, what do I, like, what do I say?
1: Hiya. I'm Clara Erickson, and you're listening to Collecting Histories, part of my senior thesis for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva Schools at KGI. In this series, we look at national narratives from different angles and perspectives in an attempt to understand the underlying structures of the world we live in. In this episode, we'll dissect the confusing terminology of the British identity, isles, and history, how these came to be, as well as ask ourselves what lies at the very basis of a nation and its narrative. Okay, time for caveat dance. I'm currently taking a course in journalism, and one of the most impactful things my teacher has told me is that as long as people you talk to say different things or new things, that's a sign that you should continue asking questions. I read a lot of books, articles, and opinion pieces before even starting to make this episode, and I'm almost more confused now than I was when I started out. Every national narrative is complicated, personal, and touchy. Making generalizations, inferences, and arguments about them is terrifying. Nevertheless, in a time when national narratives once again are being presented with a primordial, almost biological rhetoric, I think that any norm-deviating critique serves a purpose. So, that's what I'm trying to do.
0: So, I met with Georgie. I'm Georgie. Um, I'm from the UK, I was born um, in Chichester, which is like the south, it's in West Sussex. And Theo.
2: Okay, so my name's Theo, or Theo, depending on which country I'm in. Um, I grew up in London.
1: To ask them some very uncomfortable questions about their identities. That is, their identities as someone growing up in England and having a British passport to travel with. Georgie and Theo both left home at the age of 16, Theo for Norway.
2: I went to school in Norway (laughs) for um, sixth form is what we'd call it in the UK, sixth form college.
0: Where we were classmates for two years and Georgie. I applied to United World College and then I went to United World College Costa Rica for two years. Okay, but why Theo and Georgie?
1: They're both English and white middle class students in their 20s. Well... They're critical. And not everyone is. I, for one, didn't start to reflect on the narrative and identity I was taught growing up until I started this project, about a year ago, well into my bachelor's degree. Some people never feel the urge to reflect over it, and feel that it's something that straightforwardly represents them. But in my process of questioning and examining the British national identity, I needed someone from the inside to reflect, criticize, and question. Theo and Georgie have both already reflected a lot on this narrative, the narrative they were taught growing up, and had formed some sort of distance and understanding of their national narrative and identity, after some years of confusion of what labels to use to describe this identity that they had. I first met Theo during our introduction week at United Royal College's Red Cross Nordic in our tiny remote fjord in Norway in August 2014. We were probably in the wooden canteen, grabbing some crackers and jam during cookie break for a day full of bonding activities. I probably fired off a wide smile and placed my open hand in the space between us, waiting for him to take it. When he took it, I likely introduced myself as... Hi, I'm Clara from Sweden. That's a very short sentence. Only five short words. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, there's a lot contained there. First of all, it contains the name my parents gave me, Clara. Not only does it contain my name, it assumes that I am in fact one with my name, that this is my ultimate label. The fact that I used Clara and not one of my weird middle school nicknames such as The Cucumber or Clary the Rarey indicated to Theo that this is what I would like him to call me and think of me as. The second piece of information there is the country I name and the close relationship it has with my name. I'm Clara from Sweden, that this is the nation or geographical area where my body, name, and personality stems from. I could have said, I'm Clara and I'm Swedish, or Clara a Swede. What's the difference? Well, maybe it indicates that I want to be associated with the values and identity of being part of the national identity of Sweden. Third, it indicates that in this situation, I think that the nation I was born and raised to identify with is of essential importance. These different words are what we call labels. Labels are the tags we attach to ourselves and others in order to more effectively and easily sort through complex and heavy loads of information. They're an integral part of our reality as humans. The labels we use depend on the situation we're in, on what's valued and not valued in a certain place and time, and on what you want others to associate with you. But labels can be complicated. I had it pretty easy in these situations. My mom and dad were both born in Sweden, and their parents as well. I'm white, blonde, and blue-eyed, and my mother tongue is Swedish. I never had any alternate nations or countries to really identify with. I do come from Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, and within Sweden, the Stockholmer identity is one I carry with pride. But when I leave Sweden, that identity turns into Swedishness and becomes a fast way for me to communicate where I'm from and help the person in front of me get an idea of who I am. Swedish. I couldn't remember what Theo answered when we first met, so I asked him.
2: I can't remember exactly, but I most likely said Londoner, yeah. Yeah, maybe UK then, yeah. Yeah, I'm from the UK or of Great Britain somehow, yeah.
1: Theo's Londoner identity did not automatically translate into Britishness for him because London seemed too distinct from the rest to be translatable.
2: I have family outside of London in like southern England and in Scotland, but it always felt like we were we were going somewhere else, you know, like it was always like a ooh <laughs> Yeah.
1: He told me that moving away from the UK for the first time, this was the first time he really thought about that label, the national label.
2: I think that was like the first time I ever thought about Britishness. Um, But then my co-year, who was Welsh, (laughs) was really like about British culture and was almost like offended by my like lack of Knowledge, I'd say, probably, about greater British culture, which I can totally understand.
0: Georgie had similar thoughts. So at that, I went through a phase, definitely, of saying, I'm Georgie from England. And then I was influenced by what my other British, like, co-years and other people, what they said. And all of us said a slightly different thing, I noticed. Like, some people would say, I'm... I'm from the UK. Some people say I'm from Britain. Some people say I'm from England. And I think I was navigating, hearing what other people were saying and thinking, oh, what do I, like, what do I say? Um, I think now, I think I would say I'm British, because I think, subconsciously, I see that as a bit of, like, acknowledgement of what I think that means now.
1: Theo identified himself as a Londoner, or worst case, from the UK. Georgie used to say she was from England, and then from the UK, and now she says she's British. Yet neither of them seems to have reconsidered the geographical place of their origin. Thea was born and bred in London, and Georgie in West Sussex. But somehow, they both have reconsidered the label they use, reconsidered again, and then come back to the same thing or something very different. Call me a nerd, but I think that all things man-made are socially constructed and historically contingent. The idea that everything we think or say are shaped by social norms and historical trends? Yep, I am that person at the party. Georgie and Theo keep changing their own self-imposed labels to reflect their feelings towards their nation, but in the act of choosing a label, they're also actively not choosing some, putting themselves in opposition to something else in order to define what they and their nation perhaps is. That's complicated, and we'll get back to that. And so, Georgie? Theo? What is Britishness? Who is British? Where does that label come from? And how did it come to be? The UK's full name these days is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It's a mouthful. And it contains some important implications for the nation itself. First of all, it's a United Kingdom. Oxford's English Dictionary defines the word united as "...joined together politically, for a common purpose or by common feelings." Joined together to me indicates a sense of equality, as does for a common purpose. A unit moving forward in a unison manner. There's another adjective in there, great. Now, in this context, this word is related to the name of the island of England, Scotland, and Wales, but has also been used in national discourse as a way of indicating the greatness of the nation or its culture. Further, the name identifies two units within this one united unit, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, and Wales, and Northern Ireland. Within this one supposedly coherent unit, there are several different large-scale identities that people carry and associate with. That seems rather straightforward, right? Well, if it was, wouldn't everyone living on the island feel comfortable using both their regional and constituent countries label as well as their British label, the overarching one supposedly representing the whole? Wouldn't Georgie feel great labeling herself as English and British? And Theo about extending his identity beyond London? And wouldn't both Scottish, Welsh, and Northern Irish people feel like they could use both, perhaps interchangeably? If the British identity is so intertwined and equally affected by all its subparts, I mean. I would think so. But according to Georgie, it seems that mainly people from England feel like they are properly and fully represented by their Britishness. Why? Well, I think for one, there are a lot of names that Britain has that could be used when identifying oneself with Britishness, and... They all have different connotations, peoples, and places included and accepted within them. Okay, because I now have a list for you. I gave Georgie and Theo a list of names that have been or are used for Britain. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you to look at it okay. and just kind of let me know what your thoughts are on the different things on the list Okay. and what they make you think about.
0: Okay.
2: Okay, I can, talk to, I can talk through each one, perhaps?
0: Yeah. The British Isles. So the history of the British Isles. Alright, let's
1: get some definitions down. The British Isles, as a geographical feature, is the only thing about the present-day archipelago which is not man-made. Save a few changes to the coastline, the landmass remains largely the same. Now, I'm frankly not very interested in how the shape and size came to be, where its soil came from, or what rock forms its foundations. For that, you'll have to resort to Google or some other podcast. But when presented with a list of names of the Isles, Georgie thought the British Isles to be the most neutral, inclusive, and genuine labels available for naming the Isles she's from. Perhaps descriptive of Britishness?
0: I feel like, in my head, like the British Isles is just like, it's a geographical grouping. So the, British, the history of the British Isles, because, yeah, it just feels more neutral. And within that, a history of the British Isles could incorporate a history of how did these groups meet each other and do terrible things. But, like, it feels like a honest and truthful and neutral way to explore that. I think even, like, any of these, the history of blah, blah, blah. Like, if there was a book called The History of the British Isles in a bookshop, I would, like, pick that up.
1: First of all, the name The British Isles, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, includes, quote, two main islands, Great Britain and Ireland, and numerous smaller islands and island groups, including the Hebrids, the Shetland Islands, the Orkney Islands, the Isles of Scilly, the Isle of Man. Some also include the Channel Islands in this grouping, According to this definition, the British Isles include the constituent countries of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, the Independent Republic of Ireland, as well as...
2: Oh god, okay, my geography of my own country is, like, bad. British Isles, I guess that's just, like, all of the bits around us as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But just because it formally includes the island called Great Britain, the smaller one next to it called Ireland, and all of the, um, bits around as well that doesn't necessarily mean that it's neutral. In fact, there's been great controversy with regards to this particular way of grouping the identity of the islands. One big problem lies in how the history of the British Isles often is presented. A majority of sources describe interactions between people of the Isles starting with England, or how England in particular interacted with other groups in order to form the British nation which exists today. This approach places those other groups in a passive position in their own supposed history from the very start of the explanation. Now, that could potentially be all well and good if all of these other groups were even part of the nation, which they're not. The Republic of Ireland has for a long time been an independent nation, completely separated from the United Kingdom. But that history is complicated, intense, and infected, and not completely over. And so the Irish object to the isles being called the British Isles. Why? Because they're not British, whatever that means. But how did it come to be like this? Why is, according to some, Scotland, Wales, and England British, but not Ireland? Well, it stems from an explicit and intentional othering. The defining of what Britain is by defining what it's not, also known as the act of othering, the creation of an in-group by having a contrasting out-group. The Kingdom of Great Britain The othering of Ireland as the out-group of the British identity emerged through the grouping and togetherness of the three other countries of the Isles England, Scotland, and Wales, going formally as far back as 1707 and the Act of Union, an act which Ireland was made part of beginning with the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland in the late 12th century, but had not consented to. Like, at all. And this grouping, with all of its inherent power dynamics and united separatism, remains a foundation for the very idea of Britishness today.
3: The two kingdoms of England and Scotland shall upon the first day of May, which shall be in the year 1707, and forever after be united into one kingdom by the name of Great Britain, the ensigns armorial of the said United Kingdom, be as such Her Majesty shall appoint, and the crosses of St. George and St. Andrew be conjoined in such manner as Her Majesty shall think fit, and in all flags, banners, standards and ensigns, both at sea and land.
1: In the Act of Union, signed by the Scottish Parliament on the 16th of January 1707, the two parliaments of Scotland and England were dissolved to be one and the same, the Parliament of Great Britain. After this union, there were two significant rebellions by the Scottish clans, one in 1715 and one in 1745, that perhaps indicated that Scots even initially weren't too happy about the union with England. Though it brought some economic improvements for Scotland through the opening of trade with both England and its empire, the clans and with them the Scottish way of life were sacrificed at its expense. The Scottish identity to this day remains a strong separate identity from the one forged together with England and Wales, seen most recently in the ongoing discussions around the independence referendums within Scottish politics. In general though, this union of the two distinct parliaments became the jumpstart of the joining of the three distinct identities, English, Scottish and Welsh, forming one larger identity, in essence creating the British nation. So then, what about Ireland? Ireland was a formal part of the United Kingdom from the Second Act of Union in 1801, this time between the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland until 1922 under the combined full name of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. But in reality, they'd been more or less colonized since the Norman invasion in the 12th century. I'm saying more or less because this is a contested and convoluted history and I won't even attempt to do it the justice it deserves. That's like a whole other episode. Ireland never fell as smoothly under the umbrella identity of British as Scotland and Wales to a large extent had. Individual Irishmen served in the British army as civil servants in the colonies and rose to prominent posts in society if they weren't Catholic. But as a wider society, Ireland never seemed to be able to combine their Irish identity with a British identity. Again, this may be because up until the 1870s, what made one British, or a true Briton was the quality of being a good Protestant who followed and subscribed to the, quote, ancient traditions of Britain. Things changed after the 1870s, but not for the better for the Irish. The rhetoric about what it meant to be a Briton turned into a question of morality, Where the destitute and immoral of society became the Others, in contrast to which the British identity was created. These Others allowed the Scottish, Welsh, and English identities to come together under the umbrella of Britishness because they had something else together to compare themselves to. So why not the Irish then as well? Well, in England, to be Irish was often associated with an innate tendency towards immoral behavior, making them into the others still under this definition as well. Unsurprisingly to me, people don't want to be treated as second-class citizens based purely on where and to whom they were born or what they believe in. So after a guerrilla war fought between the Irish Republican Army and the British government in 1919-1921, to the Irish Free State was established. As you might guess, it was more complicated than that, but yeah. Excluding, however, the complicated Northern Ireland, which had a slight majority of Protestant citizens who wanted to remain under British rule. Apparently, Protestantism remained a strong case for identification with Britishness and the British label there. All in all, this led Ireland to have quite a complicated relationship with the British and the idea of Britishness. In a letter to the Irish Times in 1996, Irish reader Hugh Sheehy passionately declared that
3: The term the British Isles is, quite simply anachronistic political designation that has no real basis in geography. Ireland is, quite simply, not a British island. It used to be one in a political sense, but the fact that a piece of it is still in the UK is no real argument for calling the whole place British. British islands include Skye, the Orkneys, Anglesey, etc. They don't include Ireland.
1: The question of whether or not the term the British Isles could or should refer to Ireland actually went as far as to the Irish Parliament. In a parliamentary debate in 2005, the then Minister of Foreign Affairs, Dermot Ahern, answered the question with significant emphasis.
3: The British Isles is not an officially recognised term in any legal intergovernmental sense. It is without any official status. The government, including the Department of Foreign Affairs, does not use this term. Our officials in the Embassy of Ireland, London, continue to monitor the media in Britain for any abuse of the official terms as set out in the Constitution of Ireland and in legislation. These include the name of the state, the president, the Taoiseach, and others.
1: So can this term be used to outline and label Britishness? Well, the Irish don't want to be called British, because to them... That's a political engagement which brings with it the shadows from the past when their otherness was used to create Britishness itself. In that way, this label for the identity seems less than neutral. They indeed are keeping track of any abuse in the media, where Ireland would be roped into the classification as British through the use of the British Isles. It thus seems we couldn't use this label without infecting old wounds from the past in the shape of the Irish independence and identity. In a way, I guess, however, that Georgie was right when she argued that...
0: A history of the British Isles could incorporate a history of how did these groups meet each other and do terrible things, but like, it feels like a honest and truthful and neutral way to explore that.
1: Because in the examination of what the British Isles mean, We've been forced to look at the conflicts existing within the very essence of constellations of the Isles, especially at how Britain even got its Britishness through the alienation and othering of one of their, according to this definition, member islands.
2: Britannia, whenever I hear Britannia I always think of the navy. Um, because of the like the line like "Robert Britannia, Britannia rules the waves."
0: So, (laughs) yeah. So she's this, yeah, this figure of the empire. Um, that was. Yeah, there was a lot of, like, on the bows of ships and, like, um in any, like, official colonial, like, documents being sent around the world, like, when we were everywhere. Like, it was, like, in stamps and stuff and seals and... And, again, in, like, a lot of our, like, Navy songs and things and, like, rural Britannia.
2: I think the image of Britannia... Because she's, like, this woman, right? I don't know, it's, like, this woman Britannia. Like I think that imagery comes from a history of, like female warriors and stuff in the U.K. Um,
1: In episode four about India, we talked about the power which a symbol can have for the sense of purpose, belonging, and identity, regardless of which purpose it has. Like... There's a reason why every company has a logo, often changing with time and attempting to make itself both as appealing to its customers as possible, all the while also communicating something supposedly inherent or typical of the company. Nations have logos or symbols too, often taking the shape of songs, emblems, or personifications. India has Bharat Mata, France has Marianne, Ireland has Hibernia or Aaron, the US, Liberty and Uncle Sam, Russia, Mother Russia, and Britain has her Britannia. Britannia was born in around 110 AD, on the flip side of the coin circulated in the Roman province Britannia to commemorate the successes of Emperor Hadrian in the region. This was common practice. Coins were a quick and powerful way to spread messages and stories of success within the large empire. On this first coin, Britannia sits on a rock clad in the classical robes, Her shield on the ground and spear in hand, she looks submissive, almost hunching. She's defeated, the symbol of British submission to the Empire. For 1,500 years, she lay forgotten or ignored, but was resurrected again in the 16th century, this time armed with a breastplate, a helmet, and instead of a spear, proudly holds a scepter, a proclamation of sovereignty. Now a symbol of strength, she came to embody the ideals of strength, virtue, and moral righteousness, which were to build an empire. Theo and Georgie see her in her Victorian attire, at the height of her fame and symbolic value.
0: It's like this, when it comes up in my head, it's like this image of like this, yeah, this elegant, but like strong... Renaissance painting woman looking over the seas with like a sword. This also happens
1: to be the time when the sun never set on the British Empire. The British crown ruled over Canada, Oceania, the Indian subcontinent, Malaysia, parts of the Caribbean, and large parts of southern, eastern, and western Africa. Not to mention all of the, well, British Isles. And at the top of the pyramid was Queen Victoria.
2: So they like golden? What do they call her? They're like the golden queen, the one who never married and never had kids.
1: But Queen Victoria was not only just a monarch. She soon became a symbol of Imperial Britain's triumphs around the world. Over time, Britannia became conflated with the Golden Queen, the mother of the nation, the symbol of the goodness of the British Empire. Together with John Bull, often portrayed as a plump man in the stretched-out vest symbolizing the growing urban working and middle classes the pair came to represent two sides of the growing British identity. Imperial idealism in the form of virtuous, strong, and almost divine Britannia, combined with down-to-earth practicality in the modern era of mass communication in the form of the more human John Bull. With her divine reputation having been established over the centuries, Britannia was the perfect symbol for the enforcer of her ideals, the British Navy. There's so much written about both preconditions, duration and consequences of the British Empire, many of the more recent ones using a post-colonial lens to view, for example, the exonification and sexualization of colonial bodies. But the Empire also provided yet another way for the forging and consolidation of the British identity. Suddenly, it wasn't just Ireland which was placed in the awful position as the other, a definition of what the British nation was not, it was the whole world. From focusing on Protestantism to immorality, Britishness now also meant whiteness. And how was this realized? In the definition of what Britain was not, of course. Britons were not uncivilized, dark, savage, and clueless. Hence they were civilized, light, sophisticated, and educated. And in this expansion, as so many imperial subjects were excluded, even the dedicated Irishman could be roped into the feeling of Britishness, because this identity was less about what it was than what it wasn't. After all, the Irish aren't known for their tan. Britannia became the symbol which symbolizes what Britain should be, by being a stark contrast to what they were told subjects of the empire were. She was strong, untouchable, divine, and noble, whereas the humans brought back to Britain as phenomena or exhibitions were dark, wild, and unrefined or so the British told themselves. Britannia, to some extent, became the symbol for the cause of helping the world to become a bit more like the Great Britain, jewel meaning intended.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, it's really interesting, because it, yeah, there's this, which is common to, like, a lot of, like, imperial, like, discourse, but this like, self-justified colonialism, so it, so the fact that we're almost doing this because it's right, is the right thing to do. And I think, in a weird way, like, that was maybe even a very, like, um, purposeful attempt to naturalise what was going on and make it seem like a, just a noble and benevolent, um, power. So Britain became Britain
1: in the first place through the Act of Union with Scotland in 1707, an identity which is forged in the othering of Catholics at first, meaning Ireland as well as to some extent Scottish Highlanders. As British society redefines this other as the society's immoral or destitute, good and upstanding Scottish and Welsh citizens get to be part of the club, whereas the Irish are alienated in their continued labelling as subpar. The Irish are only welcome when the Other expands beyond the Isles and start including things like skin color and language. And things changed after that too. Today Britain has lost most of its colonies, as well as Southern Ireland to independence. Britain no longer rules the waves, but is, but not for long, just one part of the European Union which ceases as dictating its every move. Where is the Other, the one which tells Britain what it is by what it's not? Well, for a long time, it had no other, and many argue that, in the lack of the other, Britishness was losing ground. The people living in Britain no longer had something to unite against, and therefore retracted back to more historical and traditional loyalties. On the Great British Isle, this meant the identities of being Scottish or Welsh. In Northern Ireland, this meant being either Catholic or Protestant. It seems only the English are keen to call themselves British these days. But in recent years, Britain has arguably created new others. Brussels, the seat of the EU as the new Rome, making Britannia hunch again, and the immigrants as its invading foot soldiers. In 2016, the nation voted in a national referendum on whether or not to leave the EU. Brexit propagators argued that the EU threatens British sovereignty, that it's strangling the UK in burdensome regulations, and that the EU allows too many immigrants. The results of the referendum split Great Britain in two. Those who voted Leave and those who voted Remain. Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Western Wales and London, as well as small patches across the UK, voted Majority Remain. And the Leave votes were concentrated within England and Eastern Wales. Needless to say, the British nation has a complicated composition, built on both unity and division, invitation and othering, Georgie told me that she thinks that these complex relationships affect her ability or willingness to use the labels existing in the archipelago. Like, given the problematic past of almost all of the labels, which one should she use? Which one's the least problematic?
0: Some people would say I'm I'm from the UK, some people would say I'm from Britain, some people would say I'm from England. People who weren't from England would say I'm from, well, Welsh, they would say I'm from Wales. Scottish, they would say I'm from Scotland. If you were English, you would either say English, British, or I'm from the UK.
1: Nowadays, she says she would call herself British. I asked her why. Why not English? Because that is the label of the region she did indeed grow up in.
0: So I can't get away from the terrible, exclusionist, colonial meaning of like being British. But within that, I could get away from the terrible exclusionist like colonial meaning of England because England is like historically and still like the centre of power and money um, and influence within um, Great Britain and so I think by removing myself from that I'm at least not putting myself like in opposition to these other countries which we're supposed to be united with which is like such bullshit but in theory so I think whereas for like my friends when I was in UWC who were like like one of my co was Welsh where she would never say she was British like she would and she herself was like from Wales I think because that is like a it's a it's a claiming of separate identity and it's a refusal of colonialism because that is like basically what like the UK is um whereas if I said England I'm embracing that I'm from the most privileged and historically terrible area of this historically terrible <laughs> um, group of countries <laughs> so okay, you can okay. see why I like yeah. don't like this um but like so why is she opposed to Britain because that's supposed to encapsulate all of it right? yeah but it's I think well it really depends I think I think it's because it's it's not it's not how it sounds like saying United Kingdom or like Great Britain, like all these words that are supposed to encapsulate, it makes it sound different. It's like saying the Commonwealth for like ex-colonial nations, it's supposed to make it sound like there's something more um, like consensual to it, whereas it wasn't. Like it's, I think it's it's trying to obscure the history. Or I think that's what some people would say, and I, I tend to agree. So I think by maintaining like your country identity, it's the same reason as like that thing I said about like it. So I think about being like an ex-colonial nation, I think that's how some people who are Welsh and Northern Irish and Scottish feel, but they're completely not framed as that. But at this point,
1: I was confused. If the British identity and label carries with it so many connotations of colonialism and domination of other nations, wouldn't the English identity and label be less intrusive and more self-contained? So then, by you using that name, wouldn't it, by that reasoning, be better for you to use England? Because it's less of a colonial... If
0: I... Ah, yeah, if I agree with that. Yeah. You're probably right. I think that's me being selfish and not wanting to. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think I think it's me trying to, I don't wanna be associated with the power that has done that. I'd rather vaguely use the vague problematic terminology that groups I've run together so I can feel closer to people who are not necessarily... Part of me. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely what I'm doing. Mm, I'm just, like, psychoanalyzing myself.
1: She thought about it a bit.
0: I think I like this because, again, within within England, I can claim a not-that-shitty identity. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm just, like, a little subject. And, like, if we're talking about the history of England, I can just be, like, a little peasant, like, (laughs) walking around... um, And the, like, the royal, the royalty and, like, these terrible, like, politicians and or, like, um, soldiers and, like, generals, they can be the, these powerful leaders, like, dictating how this country, like, evolves. Like, I think I would, that's like interesting to me. And also I can go into it without my like guard up because I'm not English royalty. I'm just like English. So in that smaller scenario, I can claim these other identities that made me feel more okay. Whereas I feel like I'm inherently shittier than, anyone who is the like victim of like England's colonial um, like, attempts and stuff.
1: So in this phrasing, Georgie would also return to her more regional identity, abandoning the wider British identity. But here's where it gets real convoluted. In defining herself as English rather than British, she places herself in opposition to the identity and history she thinks is associated with Britain and Britishness. She's not royalty, not a colonizer, not a decision maker. In defining what she's not, she can become English on her own terms, also just a subject. The Scottish, Welsh, Irish, and English regional identities go way back, sure, but in retorting back to these labels as opposed to the continued use of British, They take a distance from their new other, Britishness. A definition of what they don't want to be, perhaps. And labels are important, because they very effectively, as we talked about in the beginning, communicate what characteristics and ideals the person identifying with them holds to be true. The labels are what allows us to feel connected to the nation at all. The way in which we become part of the nation, included in its narrative. But it's also in this manner which the narratives themselves are created, in the continuous prioritization and reprioritization of what to include in labels and narratives. And this is the thing about nations and their narratives. Because a nation is so large, there's nothing that it can be but imagined. Belonging and association is invented and imagined through stories and narratives, identification with labels, And these stories and narratives create association based on the fact that there are people that are different from you, creating the existence of the nation based on the idea of what it's not. Relational othering. You've been listening to Collecting Histories and me, Clara Erickson. For further reading, bibliographies, and some cool graphics, visit our website, collectinghistories.com. This episode is the last one for season one, but hopefully we'll be back soon with more analyses and narratives. This season is part of my capstone project for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva Schools at KGI. Thanks to Professor Grace Woodsbucket, my advisor, to Antonia Borman, Liberty Pym, and my dad for great feedback, and to my roommate Barbara for never rolling her eyes at me when I go off on one of my endless harangues about some obscure details about narrative. Special thanks to Georgia Bullis gray Theo Gadd, and Shaoli Green for letting me interview them, and for answering my intrusive questions. Thanks also to Antonia for helping me see more complexities in an already complex situation, and teaching me about Northern Ireland. As well as to Leo Clancy and Stravko Varbanov for lending me their voices to men of the past. Music credits are in the bibliography.